Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's great to see all of y'all here tonight at Awaken. Um, I know that the entire city of Ruston decided to lose power, uh, which created a little kink in my schedule tonight as well. So I'm excited to see that all y'all came out, despite whether you thought maybe we had power or we didn't have power. Um, if you've been with us, you know that we've been going through a series called Tough Questions. Um, if you haven't been with us, this has been a series where basically what we asked is we asked for the audience, for college students to send in questions that they wanted to hear answered, that they wanted a biblical response to. And we got a bunch of different questions. And what we did is we gave those questions to our leadership team and the leadership team voted on the top five questions that they wanted to hear answered. And so far what we've done with this series is we've talked about what is God's calling on your life? What is his will for you? Secondly, we talked about what is a biblical stance on alcohol and partying? What is, how do we use wisdom in regards to that? Last week, um, we looked at how do you rejuvenate your faith whenever you're struggling? Because all of us know at some point in our faith, we do struggle. And then tonight we're going to be looking at what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? And I'll also make a note, since we lost a week due to the snow day, we weren't able to do our fifth question, which is, um, what does the Bible have to say about biblical reconciliation and how do we work on this in our culture? I'm actually going to readdress that later on in a series. I'll tell you after the sermon tonight, kind of what that's going to look like or whatnot. And so anyway, um, tonight the sermon is on what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And I just want to start off by saying this. It's interesting to me, uh, especially I had somebody tell me one time in my walk, Merrick, whenever you preach, you'll find there are certain sermons you preach where you feel more spiritual warfare than any other thing you do. Like you'll feel certain times where the weight of a topic is on your shoulders. And so what I did actually whenever we got these five questions is I positioned these questions to where honestly they would suit me best and they'd be easiest on me. Um, I was supposed to speak at a D now in mid-January, and so I did not put this topic right after that because I wanted ample time to prepare and be ready and make sure I was clear and tactful and whatnot. Well, that disciple now got canceled and got put to this past weekend, which is where I was all weekend. Not only that, the snow day pushed it back one week, so this just happened to be the week that this topic was going to be discussed. Not only that, my son was supposed to have tubes put in his ears several weeks back, but instead of tubes, our doctor said, I think you need to have eye surgery to fix his lazy eye instead. And so we did that. Well, whenever we called, there was only one date available, and that was February 5th, this past Monday. I was told that he's going to go in, he's going to have surgery that afternoon, Merrick, you maybe can go back to work. That wasn't the case. Um, just being candid and being honest, Monday was probably one of the harder days as I got to uh, hold my son while he cried multiple times and fell asleep on my chest. Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday morning, I didn't get here. I didn't get into the office until three on Tuesday. I go home today. The lights are out. I don't get to come up here as normal as I usually do. Both of my kids are freaking out. And the whole point of the reason that I tell you all of this um, is God has a message tonight. He has a message every night. I don't think I have to stand up here and really put much weight to the content of the sermon tonight because I think we all know this is a big issue in our culture right now. I think we all know that if we're honest, all of us have friends who we love, where we differ on this. All of us have family members whom we love, where we differ on this. The stakes of this conversation are high. Why? Because people that we love differ, and honestly, we want to love them well. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to look at God's word and I want to see what does God's word say about homosexuality? And initially that's what the whole sermon was going to be about. Well, I actually shortened that section of it because I wanted to get to something else. What should our response be to those who struggle? What should the church's response be to those who struggle? And I want to give a challenge to you tonight. And so let's pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for who you are. God, I thank you for the way you work. I thank you for the way you move. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it, God. I thank you that you've given it to us to live by it. You tell us that it is straight from you. You tell us that it's not made up by a man or any man, but it's inspired by you. You are the originator of your word. Father, may we open it with humility tonight as we look to a very difficult subject. Let's call this Father in your name. Amen. As I began to look into this topic and as I began to research this, one of the things I did is I went and honestly listened to the stories of people who say they struggle with same-sex attraction. 
And as I listened to a lot of these stories, I saw a constant theme that came up across the board. I found it interesting that a lot of these people actually grew up in and around the church. And so let me just kind of give you a little bit of a discourse of what I heard one guy say, and this is the same song I've heard about a lot of people. So this one guy said he remembers growing up and being in school. And he remembers once he got into junior high, he started seeing the guys around him start talking about girls in, in ways that, that they hadn't beforehand and how um, they started talking about the feelings that they had towards girls, primarily physically, and how physically they were attracted to them in a different way. And physically, they talked about things that they wanted to do with girls that they hadn't before in fifth grade or below. And this one guy said, I can remember them talk about girls and hear, you know, emotionally, I feel like I connect with girls a lot better, but physically, I don't really think I understand what you're saying. I don't really feel that way. So this one particular guy said, all I have to do is wait. I know these feelings will come. And he said, as I got into high school, I noticed that the feelings that they talked about, that they felt physically towards girls, I actually felt to my guy friends. I I, I mean, I got along with girls real well. Emotionally, I got along real well with girls, but with guys, I found that I was more attracted to them physically. And so he said, of course, the church was a place he felt he could go to. No, that wasn't the case. Actually, he said, for fear of rejection, for fear of shame, for fear, I didn't tell anybody. And instead, I played along with this game that, you know what, yeah, I'd talk about this. Whenever guys would ask me, who is it that I like, I would just name some girl. I would, I would play a part that I really didn't feel. You know, and as I looked at this, y'all, I continually saw that this was the same story. It was like a broken record in so many ways of people who come through this and feel like there's no one to talk to. And whenever they think of the church, they think of not being able to go to them either. And so once again, I told y'all what I want to do tonight. I want to look at quickly, why is this such a big a topic? Why is this so important? Then what does God's word say? And what is the response to us? The first is this, why is this such a big topic? Because biblical authority and biblical fidelity are at stake. What do I mean whenever I say that? Biblical authority. If we are going to say that our authority is God's word, if we're going to say that all matters of life are going to be under this book, that I will not bring my opinions to it, I will not bring my presuppositions to it, I will come to it and see what it has to say, then we have to do that. We have to come to God's word in humility saying, whatever you say, Lord, I want to fall into submission to it. Now, why do I say biblical fidelity is at stake? Is because there's a war going on right now, and war might be a bit of an extreme word, but there's a lot of people who are using God's word to say that it doesn't say anything about homosexuality as we know it today. It doesn't say anything. As a matter of fact, anything that's in the Bible about homosexuality is non-existent or irrelevant for us today in most ways. And so what I'm saying is biblical authority and biblical fidelity is at stake with this conversation, which is why it's so important. I heard one guy say this this week. The scariest words almost ever penned in God's word come in Genesis chapter 3. So Adam and Eve are living in, in perfection. They're living in the garden where everything is perfect and great. And the serpent comes up to Adam and Eve. And you know what he says to Eve? He says, did God really say? Did God really say? And hear me, I'm not going to put a one-to-one parallel, but in a lot of ways, this is what we're getting today, is did God really say that that was wrong? Did God really say that about this? And there are a number of topics where this is the case, not just with homosexuality. Biblical fidelity and biblical authority are at stake in many ways. The second thing is, like I told you earlier, this, this hits close to home. It does. It hits close to home. All of us, once again, have friends or family or loved ones that we want to show how much we care about them. And this is an important topic to know where we stand and to know why we stand where we stand. So with that, what does God's word have to say? I want to break it up into three different things. First, I want to talk about this. God's word tells us that he created men and women with a natural order. God's word tells us that he created men and women with a natural 
order. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 1, and y'all, we're going to be going through a lot of different passages of Scripture tonight, so if you want, you can just look on the screen, or I'd encourage you, especially if there are ones I'll spend a little bit more time with, I'll tell you if you want to turn there. Um, but Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and then Genesis 2, 18 through 25. We're going to read this to start. It says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then turn over to Genesis 2, verses 18 and following. It says this. This is kind of a more detailed description of how man and women came about. This is after God had already created man from the dust. Then it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up, it, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And it finishes with this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the reason I start off with this is I want you to see two things specifically. I said something about the natural order and the way that God created us. Well, in Genesis chapter 1 and 26 and 27, we see that, that he created man in, in his image and in his likeness. And not only that, we see in verse 27, he says that he created them male and female. He created them. First thing we need to note is gender is not our idea. Gender was God's idea. God is the one who created gender. God is the one who created man and woman. God is the one who created them different. The reason I use that and I use Genesis 2 is in Genesis 2 you see the creation of the woman. And there's something very unique about the way women were created. As you see that, that God not only takes something he's created like dust, he creates a living being or takes a living being which he has created and he creates a woman out of an already living being. This is the first time we see this done. And in so doing this, not only does he create the woman, but then we see the first marriage ceremony in verses 23 and 24, where it says, therefore God presented the woman to the man and said, man shall leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What I want you to see here is marriage is not man's idea. Marriage was God's idea. Gender was not an invention made by man. Gender was God's idea. Marriage was not invented by man. Marriage was God's idea. And y'all, the interesting thing about a man and a woman is, is that the way that God created them, there's, they're supposed to once again in some way have the image and the likeness of God. That's a big deal, right? Well, what's interesting is whenever a man and a woman get married and they have physical union, it, it says that the two become one flesh. What's really interesting about this is what God is saying is that man and woman can do together what they cannot do separately. In the same way that God is made up of three persons, yet one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, there's something about this union between a man and a woman that makes them one flesh. Not only do we see that physically, but we see that in all aspects. In, Gale in Ephesians 5, we see Paul talk about this idea of there's a profound mystery of marriage between a man and a woman. They literally become one flesh. And so we see this prescribed at the very beginning. Well, what I want you to see also, Matthew 19, there's some Pharisees and some scribes that come up to Jesus and their goal is to test him. And look at what they say in Matthew 19. It says this, and Pharisees came up to him, meaning Jesus, and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Well, whenever Jesus answers, notice he doesn't do it in the way they expect. It says, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I want you to notice what God ordains at the beginning of creation, God in Jesus reiterates in Matthew 19. When talking about marriage, when talking about divorce, he talks about all the way to the beginning. Do you know who created them? And who created them male and female? This is what he says. It's when they become one flesh, they are one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So it seems that God's word tells us that he created men and women with a natural order. The second thing I want you to see is God's word tells us that homosexuality is contrary to the natural order that God created. Homosexuality is contrary to the natural order that God created. Now, whenever I say the natural order and say that it's unnatural, I don't mean that it isn't possible that someone is naturally attracted to someone of the same sex. I do not mean that. But I'm saying it's not natural and that it's not the way God intended it to be. And I'll explain this a little bit more in a little bit. The first thing I want you to look at is I want to look at an Old Testament example of unnatural desire and a New Testament example to establish this point of unnatural desire. So Genesis 19, this is a story about Sodom and Gomorrah. Many people consider this to be obsolete in the argument. I'll tell you why I don't think it is. Is in, in Genesis 19, what we see is there are two angels who are disguised as men who are going into a city called Sodom. And they're going into a city because God is actually prepared to destroy this city. And these two are sent to see if what God has heard is what it says is actually true. And these two men walk into the city, and there's a man there named Lot, who is considered to be the only righteous man in the city. And he tells these two men, he goes, hey, come and stay with me. Come and stay with me. And at first they said, no, we'll just stay out here in the courtyard. And he goes, no. He implores them, come and stay with me. And that's what we're going to pick up in Genesis 19. And we're going to look at verses, specifically verses 4 through 8. Let me see, it says this. But before they lay down, meaning Lot and the two men, the men of the city, listen to how it says this, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. Okay, wouldn't, wouldn't there be an easier way to say that? Just say the men of the city, like let's go on with it. But the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, obviously there would be questions you'd want to ask Lot about why he offered up his two daughters instead. But the point that I'm trying to make is looking at this is men, all the men, all the people in Sodom, both young and old, came to their door and said, give us these men that we may know them. Now, some people try and make an argument that this no isn't sexually. But if it isn't a sexual knowing, why would the same word be used whenever he talks about you may know my daughters because they've never known a man? Once again, it's sexual. The word no, Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve to be his wife. It was a sexual term. It was a way of knowing them. And what we see here is we see these men are coming out and seeking to have sex with these two guys. Now, I I actually think that I don't put this up there, but Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, you can write these down. Go look at them after. Ezekiel 16, 49 actually talks about this was the sin of Sodom. And it lists several things about them being prideful, about them eating too much, and this, that, and the other. A lot of things that just make them sound like they were inhospitable. And many people want to say, hey, this this story of Sodom has nothing to do with, with anything dealing with homosexuality, but everything to do with the inhospitality of the people that were in the city. But what this may fail to overlook is the very next verse in Ezekiel 16, verse 50, it talks about how they were also sentenced to death because of the abominable acts that were done among them. And so it wasn't just the hospitality. Obviously, there was something about the acts that they did, the way that they lived, the abominable acts that were the reason for their destruction. And I think Jude 7 actually gives us a little bit of clarity on this. Jude 7, it says this. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, oh, 
Oh, it didn't turn off up here. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Keep that up there for me, Hannah. So once again, many people try and look at this and they say, well, the sexual immorality was just the fact that they tried to rape these two men. Obviously, that's sexually immoral. But then they say, and pursued unnatural desire. What this means is they pursued to desire two angels. That was unnatural desire. Well, if you look in the story in Genesis 19, there's no indication that these people knew that these guys were angels. There's no implication that Lot knew that they were angels. All he saw were two men. All they saw were two men. But we see what this says is they were sexually immoral and they pursued unnatural desire. Unnatural is in not according to God's created order. I won't look this up, but 2 Peter 2.10 also talks about the sin of Sodom. And it says that they were destroyed because of their lust of defiling passion. Of defiling passion. So it seems in the Old Testament, homosexuality or someone that is a male seeking a male or female seeking a female is unnatural desire. In the New Testament, I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 1. And this is, I mean, this honestly is multiple sermons throughout this passage in this text. And honestly... It's frustrating sometimes because I feel like the only time we come to this text is because of this, and there's much more to talk about here than, than homosexuality. Um, but unfortunately, that's the nature of the discussion for tonight. And what I want you to see is in Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing, and he starts talking about how, how one, he mentions several different things. He talks about the righteousness of those who live by faith. Then he gets into an area where he talks about how God's wrath come out against the unrighteous, he starts talking about how God's wrath comes against the unrighteousness of the world. And all who are unrighteous, God's wrath is upon them. But what's interesting is in God's wrath, we don't see these people consumed. We see in God's wrath, God allows them to be given over to their own passions. And so what I want to do is I want to start reading in verse 21. 21 and following, it says this. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So basically what this is saying is, is that the world or the people have thought they were wiser than God, have no longer turned to worshiping God, have turned to worshiping themselves, have turned to worshiping their, their own images themselves. They're not worshiping God as they're supposed to. Well, we see the result of what God allows because of this and what follows. In verse 24 and following, it says, therefore, in other words, because of, honestly, the choice to worship other things and not God, it says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Let me put this in another way, sexual immorality. To the impure parts of their heart, God's wrath and judgment on these people or on the world is not of him consuming them with fire. It's the, giving them up to their own vices. Giving you up to go after what it is you're running for. If you seek to worship yourself, if you seek to worship your own passions, if you seek to worship your own desires, God is saying you have free reign to go and do so. But I want you to see a next step. It not only just says God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, it says also for this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then after this, he actually lists a litany of different things. A litany of different reasons that because of our sin, because of our desire to worship other things other than God, we've been given over to our own sin. Now, many want to ask, well, why is this the pinpointed thing? Why is this the one thing that it seems that he goes into more detail about? Well, in the Greco-Roman world, this was a big deal. This was a struggle. Now, many try and actually take this passage and write it off saying that there were boy prostitutes that was very rampant in this time. No doubt, that's the case. Men who were married oftentimes would go and rent out a little boy prostitute and sleep with him. No doubt. That is not right. 
But I want you to look at the text. Why would the text include women-on-women relationships if it was only talking about the man-cult prostitutes of the time? Why would he talk about women exchanging natural relations for those that are unnatural? Why would he talk about men likewise giving up natural relations with women and being consumed with passions for one another if homosexuality wasn't what Paul was talking about? And I think, y'all, in the case of both cases here, we see something about the natural order and what's unnatural. To be a little bit more clear, um, I read this from a guy, Sam Alberry, and I'll actually refer you to a book afterwards that, that he wrote that's really good in telling on this subject. He says this, natural refers to the fixed way of things in creation. He says, this shows us why it's not true for those who struggle with same-sex attraction to say, but God made me this way, therefore I must act on it. Paul's point in Romans 1 is that our nature as we experience it is not natural as God intended it to be. The truth is, is all of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. Desires for things that God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. What we see in God's word is we see that he created an order. He created men and women with a natural order. What we see is homosexuality is contrary to the natural order that God created. And the third thing I want you to see is God's word tells us that practicing homosexuality is a sin. And the reason I say practicing is because temptation, regardless of the temptation, is never sin. An interesting thing to note is all six passages that explicitly refer to homosexual practice actually condemn it throughout God's word. I want to show you several um, passages, four to be specific, and hopefully we're going to move through these actually fairly quickly because I want to get to the last part because I think it's really important for us. First, I want you to look at Leviticus 18.22. Leviticus 18.22, and I got a snapshot of 18.22 and of 2013. Leviticus 18.22 says this, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Then Leviticus 20.13 says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Now I want to start off with this. This was actually one of the questions in the tough question series that somebody asked to be answered. Why is it that it seems like we look at some laws in the Old Testament and we pick and pull those while other laws we say, oh, those are irrelevant? Is this how we do it? Do we just look and say, this benefits me, this doesn't benefit me, I like this one, I don't like this one? How does that come about? Well, I want to tell you, I want to give you a pretty clear answer. If you have notes, write down three things. There are three types of laws that we see in the Old Testament. There are ceremonial laws, there are civil laws, and there are moral laws. There are ceremonial laws, civil laws, and moral laws. And what I want you to see, if you're taking notes and you just want to write something down, ceremonial laws are this. They're relating to Jewish sacrificial systems and the temple. All of these ceremonial laws point forward to Jesus. And the moment that Jesus entered the picture, the moment that Jesus died on the cross, no longer were the temple regulations needed, no longer were the sacrificial system needed. He was the atoning sacrifice. And therefore, any of the ceremonial laws that we have in the Old Testament are no longer necessary. I do want to say they're good for us to read because you understand just what you got in Jesus being the atoning sacrifice. Read through Leviticus and you'll know what I'm talking about. The second thing is civil law. This law dictated day-to-day affairs for the Israelites. It was how are they supposed to act towards one another? What is supposed to be the law of the land? What's supposed to be the way this land works and whatnot? Well, with civil laws, honestly, they, they are no longer applicable to us because we're no longer one nation It's no longer God's people are just one nation, ruled by one nation. Now we're called as the people of God to go and live amongst the other world, or not the other world, but other people in the world, and we're to abide by their laws, but we're to be set apart and to be different. No longer do we follow the judicial system of of the Jews because we're not Jewish. In Christ, all people have been brought together, and we are called to go and be scattered and to live for Christ where we are at. Romans 13 talks specifically about how we are to follow the letter of the law unless it conflicts with what God's word says. And so we are to go, and we are to live in the land that we are in, obeying the laws that we are in, but being set apart. These are civil 
laws. And they are no longer applicable because we are no longer one nation. The third is moral. What is the purpose of the moral laws? The moral laws are direct commandments of God. And these commandments are in some way, shape, and form continually supposed to show us about the nature of God. Perfect example, Exodus 20. You have the Ten Commandments. This is a perfect example of the moral law that's unchanging. God's moral law that gives us a picture of his nature. Off the top of my head, I can't remember if it's Leviticus 18 or 20. I want to say it's 20 where this, t- this right here talking about if a man lies with a woman or with a male lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. It's sandwiched right in between where it talks about adultery, incest, and bestiality. All three things which I would say God would still be against. Now, some people say one of the best ways to mark a moral thing, not is just by looking at it, but see what is also reaffirmed in the New Testament, because most of the moral laws are reaffirmed later on in the New Testament. And so with all that being said, I don't want to look at Leviticus and say, oh, it's in Leviticus, it's obsolete. There are things that we see in the Old Testament law that still do apply to us today. And what we see here is if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination or a sin against the Lord. Two more passages I want y'all to look at real quick, and we're going to go through both of these, and then I'll talk about both of them at the same time. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10 says this. Hopefully that's big enough for y'all to see. I need to start making it bigger. Um, It says this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Then 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10 So this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now going through both of these lists, what I want you to see first and foremost is homosexuality is never pinpointed and pulled out all by itself and said, look at this bad sin. Rather, it's put in the middle in the context of things that everybody in this room could say, I struggle with this. I have struggled with this. Or you may say, God has redeemed me from this. But what we see in all of these passages, in both of these passages here, is something really serious, honestly. If what's said in 1 Corinthians 6 is true, it means that all the people who do this and practice a lifestyle of this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's serious, right? Honestly, it seems like a gospel serious thing. If we get this wrong, then people can think they are going to heaven whenever they are not. So this is serious. And what I want you to see so far through all of this is three main things. Once again, is that it seems in God's word, he created men and women with a natural order. It seems that homosexuality is contrary to the natural order that God created. And it seems that practicing homosexuality is a sin. Now I want to get to something where I look to everybody in this room, regardless of whether you can say I struggle with same-sex attraction, or regardless of you say I'm a born-again believer, or regardless of where you're at, there is teaching that I believe we need that we don't hear on this subject. What I want us to do is I want us to look at John chapter 8, a very interesting passage. John chapter 8, and yes, I did pull it up. So John chapter 8 And I'm going to read through a story of Jesus that many of you probably are familiar with. And then I'm going to bring some implications of this out for us. So John chapter 8, it actually starts in 753, but 753 just says, they went each to his own house. And then starting with verse 1, it says this, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, 
He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So what do we see here? We see something really interesting and really corrupt, to be honest. We see Jesus going into the temple, to God's place, where God's supposed to be worshipped. We see him sitting down and teaching people. In the middle of this, there's a ruckus, no doubt. Pharisees and scribes, the religious elite, dragging a woman in and putting her in his midst. And all at one time pointing and saying, this is what we've got. She was caught in the act of adultery. Moses says, you should stone such people. What do you say? And they did this in order to test him. It's interesting. Jesus does not initially respond. I think it's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't even initially stand up. At least we don't see that he stood up. It just says that he bent down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. Oh man, how much speculation has been about what did Jesus write? Can I tell you it doesn't matter? If it did, we'd know. I think the best explanation, I heard one guy say this, if somebody were to talk to you and you were to bend down and start writing on the ground, what would they think you were doing? Probably ignoring them. Well, it says they kept talking to Jesus and they kept talking to Jesus and they kept arguing their point and it says, Jesus stood up and said, whichever one of you is without sin, let that person be the first one to throw a stone. You see, whenever I've read this before, I've always read this as they have to recognize that they are sinners too. But that's not exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, let any of you who is without sin throw the first stone. That means in this moment, that means in what you've done, if you are without sin in this action, then go ahead and throw a stone at her. But you see, Jesus knew something that they should have known that he would have known. First and foremost, if someone is caught in the act of adultery, is it possible to do that alone? Probably not. It's not. So the first question would be, how come you brought the woman? Where's the man? Moses' law also says that both are to be brought before a judge and their case is to be heard. Once again, you're supposed to bring them in front of a judge. Why did you drag them into the temple? By doing so, you've openly shamed them. You've openly rejected them. You have openly brought embarrassment upon them. So in essence, what Jesus wants them to see is you have publicly shamed and humiliated this woman. You've treated her unfairly and you've treated her unjustly. And we see probably the best music to this woman's ears as stones began to drop from these guys' hands. And they walked out, starting with the oldest to the youngest. What does this mean for us? I'm going to show you this. Three things from Jesus. Jesus stands against the religious elite on behalf of the woman caught in adultery. Y'all, we don't see it here, but Jesus was sitting down. He bent over. He's on the ground. And whenever it says Jesus stood up, to stand up against the religious elite was literally to challenge their authority, was literally to tell them basically, I am the authority, not you. Jesus stood, and he doesn't even address the woman. The first person he addresses is the religious elite standing there with stones in their hand ready to pound this woman. And Jesus says, whoever is without sin, be the first person to throw the stone. Well, then all of them walk out, and we see he turns to the woman and says, is there no one here to condemn you? She says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. First, we see Jesus stands against the religious elite on behalf of the woman caught in adultery. adultery. Secondly, we see Jesus loved and gave grace to the woman where she was, exactly where she was. If someone is caught in the act of adultery and they pulled this woman out of there, how do you think she was clothed? She's standing in a spot where she should be fully exposed and should be ashamed. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you. 
You know why? Because there's not any person who Jesus condemns and says, you do not have my love because they're a person. Rather, it's because of the sin that's in our life. We see Jesus gave grace and love to a woman who at this moment was guilty, guilty, guilty. And he said, I do not condemn you. Third, we see Jesus did this. Jesus loved the woman too much to leave her where she was. You see, Jesus loved her as a person, but he loved her too much to leave her the way he found her. He says, neither do I condemn you. Then he says, go and sin no more. Jesus' call to this woman was for a new way of life. Jesus' call to this woman was go and be different. Live differently now. I don't condemn you, but I don't want you to walk out of here the same. Why do I bring up this story? In this story, the church is much more like the Pharisees and scribes in relation to same-sex attraction and homosexuality than they are Jesus. And that's an indictment against who we are as a people and as the body of Christ. Historically, the church has walked around with stones ready to throw them at someone who struggles with same-sex attraction where they have many people who say, I can't even come to the church and say how I feel. I can't come and struggle because I'll be rejected. I'll be ashamed. I'll be pushed out. And you know who that's an indictment on? That's an indictment on us. Jesus never simply looks at a person. He looks at their soul. He doesn't look at somebody stuck in sin or you and me and every one of us in this room would be out of luck. I want you to pull up 1 Corinthians 6, 9 again. I think I should have it on there. It says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen to what Paul says, and such were some of you. You were this, not those people, you And what does Jesus do? It says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Hear me clearly. As the church, we must drop the stones whenever it comes to people who struggle with same-sex attraction. We must make the church a safe place where someone can come and say, look, I'm struggling. Because you know why? Their sin is no different than yours. It also is what helped put the nails on the cross for Christ. Now, not to be too harsh to our group, I think our generations wants it to be different. I do. But the amount of evidence against the church out there, against people who, or people in the church who are speaking out in harsh and filthy and awful ways against people who struggle with homosexuality is awful. And I'm convinced, along with the guy I listened to this week, that if Jesus Christ came back and had one message that he could give about homosexuality, it would be to the church and not to those who struggle. He would say, you're supposed to act like me. The church is supposed to be the visible representation of what God is like. And so like Jesus, we have to fight against anyone who is cruel or is mean, or seeks to marginalize anyone because of their differences. I'm not saying we have to stand and congratulate things. I'm saying that we will stand against those who want to marginalize people who struggle with this. Because that's what Jesus would do. And that's what Jesus has done. Just like Jesus, we need to stand in love against those who treat homosexuals as castaways. We need to love the person regardless of where they are and what they struggle with. We need to love the person and tell them about the gospel and what it can do for every heart. If we start living recognizing that there's no person on earth that needed the gospel more than us, then we'll be in one step in the right direction. To the church, we've got to be different. We've got to be more like Jesus. And what does this story say to the, say to the person who's struggling with same-sex attraction? He's saying this, if you've ever been shamed, if you've ever been embarrassed, if you've ever been made fun of or cast out because of where you were, know that Jesus is with you. 
You know why? Because Jesus knows what it feels like to take the shame that he doesn't deserve. You know why? Because he did it for each one of us on the cross and he was innocent. He knows what it's like to have people reject him and put him to open shame and scorn and call him things he's not and say things about him that are not true. And he was innocent. If you struggle with same-sex attraction, I want you to know that God gives you grace in your struggle. He does not cast you out. There's no temptation that you and I face that can separate us from God. It's living the lifestyle of repetitive and continual sin, as you'll see all throughout 1 John. God's grace can meet you where you are. Whatever you've done, however you've done it, whatever you've stood for, whatever you've said, God's grace can meet you there. Lastly, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, God's calling on your life is the same as it is for the woman here and anyone else who desires to come to him. It's Luke 9, 23, Matthew 16, 24. It's in Mark 10. If anyone should come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That doesn't mean just deny aspects of our lives. It means we have to deny who we are and run after him. I want to end by telling you the story that I started with. The guy, Evan Dodson, is his name. If you want to write that name down, he has some stuff that's really good. Evan Dodson. And whenever he got pushed to have, actually understand where he was at, was never he went and he had to do it. Uh, he worked for four years at Disney. And while he was at Disney, he said, it was the first time people told me, whatever you feel, just do. Whatever you are, just be it. And he said he came to the conclusion that he would have to, one, recognize is Christianity and homosexuality compatible? And if they aren't, do I really want to be a Christian that bad? And as he said, so I don't put words in his mouth. He said, I wrestled with the fact as I looked through God's word that homosexuality was against, was against his will and his plan. I wrestled with this fact and mainly because the alternative to what I was feeling was singleness. And I honestly don't remember picking that. In an interview, somebody asked him to expound on this a little bit more. He said, I felt like more was being asked of me than of my other friends. I wrestled with this for two years before I realized that the call that Jesus had on my life was the same as everyone else. When Jesus calls us, he calls us to come and die. It means that for you and me, regardless of your temptation, we're called to give up our life. That includes your marriage plans. That includes your family plans. That includes your work plans. That includes your whole life in its entirety is given to Jesus Christ. And he said, I struggled with this for two years until I realized God doesn't ask more of me than he does them. As a matter of fact, the most intimate relationship you can have on earth might be between a husband and a wife in marriage, but that's not the most intimate relationship you can have, I promise you. The relationship you have with Christ runs much deeper than anything physical. It runs much deeper than anything emotional. Your relationship with Christ can literally change you from head to toe. It can transform the worst of people to the godliest of people. No person can do that apart from Jesus Christ. Another thing I want to say is somebody asked him, what would you say to someone who says it's not fair that heterosexuals get to get married, but those of us who are attracted to the same sex cannot. It's not fair. What would you say to that person? And he responded, he goes, you're right. It's not fair. He said, but you know what I've come to realize? It's not fair that I still sin and Christ accepts me. You know what I've come to realize? It's, it's not fair that God had to send his one and only son to pay for the sin that I am doing. And he says in this interview, if the biggest unfairness in my life is my sexuality, then I can surrender this. When there are people who it's unfair they're born in Africa and their biggest struggle in life is how do I stay alive? That's unfair. What about the person who's born with an illness? That's unfair. Down syndrome, that's unfair. There's unfairness all throughout, but let me tell you the biggest thing that's unfair and Evan hits it is that we can continually walk in opposition to a God who says, I love you despite knowing everything about you. I love you 
I knew everything you would ever do, and I still chose to send my son anyway. You want to know what love is? Find Jesus. That's to every person in the room. You want to know what grace is? Find Jesus. As a church, we have to have open arms to people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, as I said before, um, there was a lot of struggle that went into even getting ready for this sermon. There was a lot of emotional struggle getting ready for this sermon. God, there's a lot of things conflicting within me, honestly, because I have people I know and love who don't want to hear this message. God, I pray that above all else, we're faithful to you. I pray above all else, we're faithful to your word. God, I want to pray for the people in this room. God, that the people in this room, there are people in here who are holding rocks, not just against people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Lord, they're, they're getting ready to throw them at people who are the party people. They're getting ready to throw them at people who, who struggle with this, that, and the other, Lord. And we do it all the time as the church, and it's got to stop. God, why would people come to us if all we're going to do is throw stones at them? Change our hearts. Help us look at our sin. Help us look at ourselves. Because in those moments, God, we can't help but just be enamored with your majesty and your grace. God, be with the person in the room tonight who's been marginalized, who's been hurt who's been shamed, who's been rejected because they have come out to somebody and said, I struggle with same-sex attraction. I think I'm a homosexual. I think I might be gay. Whatever it is, God, be with that person tonight. Help them feel your acceptance and your love, God, as a person. But God, I pray also they feel your conviction that they don't want to leave you, that you don't want to leave them where they are but you want to give them something greater and something more than what their temptations and desires tell them. God, be with this response time. Ask all this, Father, in your name. Amen. For reflection questions, I just want to ask you to think through this. Will you drop the rocks, humble yourselves, and love people where they are, Will you promise to stand up for the marginalized and the people who are wrongfully cast away? Will you make the church a safe place for all sinners, for all struggles, for all temptations? And lastly, will you commit to letting the gospel shape your life and your love? To the person in the room who may be struggling with same-sex attraction, or maybe actively pursuing a homosexual relationship, I want to ask you this. Will you submit the ideas and opinions of the world world to the authority of God as shown in his word? And hear me, that's not easy. But I want to promise you, Christ doesn't tell us it's going to be easy. He tells us it's going to be worth it. Will you deny yourself for the sake of knowing and following Jesus? Will you surrender to his will and believe that his plan for your life is better than your own? Will you take action and tell someone, none of us needs to fight sin on our own. None of us needs to fight temptation on our own. Will you tell someone? And then lastly, will you commit to letting the gospel shape your love and your life? I'll be in the back if you want to come talk with me. You have cards in your chairs. If you want to write a question, if you want to write a statement, if you want to write whatever to me, I want to hear from you. I just want to encourage you to respond tonight as you feel led to. Sitting down, standing up, worshiping, being silent, praying, whatever that looks like. Worship.